Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much again for joining. Today, I'm going to talk about energy, and primarily energy poverty, which actually occurs all over the world. I'm quite sure that many of you, during the course of being in the COVID situation, maybe staying at home, uh, will have experienced some frustrations, maybe not with energy, but with your Wi-Fi connection. And certainly where I'm at the moment in quarantine, which is in Nairobi, we have plenty of power outages. And what this really demonstrates to many parts of the world, of course, is that COVID has brought uh, everything into stark reality, the idea that not everybody is connected. And so sending people home to, to work, quite honestly, doesn't really function very well for those who are at the bottom end of the energy scale. And this is even true of many schools and education facilities who've been trying literally to do all of their courses online. Uh, it's, it's not clear that all students, even, even in the UK, have got access to computers and Wi-Fi and can connect and really share in the lessons. So I think in the post-COVID world, talking about energy and energy poverty is going to be a very, very important point. So with that setting and with the kind of vision of where we're going to end up to talk about the last mile connectivity and some solutions, I hope, I want to really put this now into the context of sustainable development. We have really facing us lots of transformations. We want to talk about transformations in health, in transport, in, in energy, but in fact, across the whole of society. We want to leave no one behind. And so our transformations that we really see as being vital um, are not only just food and water and health, but also that digital connectivity. And in this slide, you can see that there are obviously ways in which they're interconnected. And this is really at the heart of the sustainable development goals. They're not to be solved individually. They really do have to be connected together. Um, what I would say is that energy is probably the catalyst that really will bring development even to the poorest and leave no one behind. And what it does when you have stable energy sources is, of course, to create greater resilience. But many families across the world still continue to be without electricity and not have access. So if we take a perspective over the last uh, century, maybe even since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we can see that transformations are absolutely possible. We've been able to double our life expectancy. Many, many more people are not only healthy, but unfortunately, many of those uh, who've become, in a sense, uh, able to buy food and have choices have in fact become obese, which is not, which is not a good message. Um, but far few people actually go hungry. So now we turn to what our economy looks like. And with climate change facing us, of course, it puts energy front and really in the, in the middle of the mix of how policies need to be rolled out. So on the one hand, we have the need to reduce our fossil fuel dependence, to decarbonize. And you can see in the slide that there are still many, many problems ahead of us when we talk about um, decarbonization. We think about the millions of cars that are on the road, their heavy dependence on petrol and diesel. Uh, we still do not have electrification going out and rolling out at a rate that will genuinely transform our transport systems. Although, of course, there's been, an, there's been a, an ongoing problem about the cost of some of the resources, some of the rare earths that we need and so forth. But nevertheless, fundamentally, we need to rethink our transport systems. 
And this is perhaps where the COVID uh, situation has really maybe started to alter people's thinking. I've been in quite a few discussions recently where the post-COVID is a, a plea for let's not go back to where we were. Many conversations about people saying, I don't really want to do that commute anymore. I don't see if I can be effective at home, why I need to travel all that way into work. So I suspect that even if there's a kind of business as usual sign hung out outside many offices and many places, I think people will really start to consider very, very carefully how they want to spend their time in terms of being productive for work, but at the same time, really thinking of the human cost and the cost to the planet. So decarbonization has had a big jolt. I mean, obviously, with so little industrial activity around the planet, we've seen that the greenhouse gas emissions have been tumbling. And most of that has come from power. And a lot of it has come from the fact that our industrial outputs have actually gone down quite considerably. But on the other side, we've got tremendous innovation ready to go. In other words, we have technologies. We have, for example, solar power, many forms of renewable energy, and it's becoming cheaper and cheaper. And so when we think about the three areas in which we have to move our energy conversation, clearly we need to think about the whole way in which we generate electricity. So moving away from fuel now, thinking about electricity, we have to really shift away from those fossil fuel-based um, power plants towards zero carbon services. We should probably also be genuinely considering how we're going to use tidal energy, particularly in the UK, as well as um, in other places, geothermal energy. We need to think very, very carefully about carbon capture and storage and not necessarily think of it only as a technology solution, but genuinely as using the planet to look about uh, biology and ecosystem services as being able to really trap more carbon. So there are solutions out there that don't really require us to pull again on a fuel source. Secondly, I think we need to improve energy efficiency. Uh, this is about obviously our appliances, but buildings as well, and, and the way in which industry uses energy. And thirdly, we probably should also think about the, the whole power generation of and, and how we heat our houses and so forth. So turning to biofuels and biomass isn't necessarily the way, but I'm going to come back to that because, of course, that has been the traditional energy source for so many people around the world. So if we now look at the, some of the statistics, you know, where are the people who don't have access? The story is, of course, very familiar. Uh, we have a lot of people in sub-Saharan Africa who still don't have access to energy and electricity in particular. The numbers, though, are impressive. We can see that the, the numbers of people who now have access to electricity have really, really gone up. I mean, since the 1990s, when it was about 71%, it's gone up to 87%, and that is with the population increase that we've seen. So to say today that there are 940 million people, this is what's estimated, who do not have access to, to electricity, to clean electricity, Actually, that's in one sense is a great achievement, but it is still too many people. And if you think about how much energy people around the world are using, in a sense, those who don't have access to electricity are the ones who are potentially going to use the least. I mean, we see that the minimum household use in rural environments around the world is about 250 kilowatt hours, whereas in the city, it's about 500. 
So I think overall, um, we need to recognize that investing in electricity, investing in clean energy, particularly in rural environments, is going to be the way to solve many of our issues around development and to ensure that people are not left behind. So if we look at some of these statistics, about 940 million people still not having access, we think about also um, the whole spread of countries. What, of course, you see is that there are no rich countries who do not have energy, who are energy poor. So the two are inextricably bound together. And one figure that jumps out is that despite having access to energy a lot, three billion people still do not have clean cooking facilities. I mean, fuel that isn't essentially creating smoke, causing indoor air pollution. So genuinely speaking, we need to address the whole ecosystem in which people are using energy. If we look around in a bit more detail where people are, there are some quite surprising uh, statistics that come out. Of course, we have an enormous number of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, but we have seen over the years incredible improvements. For example, in India, we've gone from 43% um, up to 85%. In Indonesia, there's nearly 100% coverage. So you have to ask the question, why is it possible for some countries to do this and others not? So clearly, it's a policy issue. Indonesia is a highly rural um, country. I mean, many, many countries, many, many islands distributed, um, you know, away from the main hub. And yet still, they've been able to put in electrification into many places. Now, I'll come to off-grid, which is a, a very important part of the whole solution space. But nevertheless, it just shows that countries can transform their whole electrification process, and it will uplift the population in terms of their ability to achieve prosperity. Near at the bottom, which I think is quite uh, shocking and, and very striking, is a country like Chad, riven with war and many other problems. It still only has about 8% 8, 8 of people having access to electricity. So, you know, we, we really do see that there are countries that are literally working off-grid um, and, and not able to benefit from all of the energy things that we have. So we're talking about about a seventh of the population of the planet not having access to, to energy. But, you know, we don't have to look so far because here in the UK, we still have quite a dependence in some places on traditional fuels. In this beautiful picture, you can see from uh, Scotland, from the, uh, from the highlands and islands, you see still the typical peat cutting, the drying out, and those peat are used then for heating. Um, in some cases, they are the only form of energy that goes into some of these really remote places. So it's, it's not just a problem of the developing world. We still have pockets all around the UK where, in fact, we need to address the issue of energy poverty. If you go to, uh, there's a map which is very, very dynamic. It can, you can put in your postcode. Um, the, the URL is, is included in the, uh, in the lecture. You will see a map for, the, uh, for England and it can be extended. And so we see that there is still quite significant energy poverty in places which are highly rural, for example, along the border with Wales, within some metropolis as well. So this is genuinely an issue that in the post-COVID setting needs to be addressed. 
Now, it goes along with many other facilities because, of course, when you have utilities that are putting in energy, electricity wires, for example, um, putting in grid, then, of course, you have the opportunity to add Wi-Fi and that sort of connectivity that comes with it and all of the benefits that people can receive. So the, this is not just a, this is not just a, a nice to have. It's an absolute necessity, which is why we talk about human right to energy. Um, it, essentially, there's, a, there's a, a very large story that will begin to talk about energy justice in, in such a setting. But the majority of people who do not have access to energy, or it's simply not affordable, are those who live in urban areas, in slums, in informal settlements, as well as those out in the rural areas. And so there is a tremendous reliance, and quite often inside uh, urban areas where there are slums, that you, in a sense, share energy. There may be one wire which is then uh, essentially hacked into to provide. Uh, resources and energy for many, many households. And this leads to quite some uh, number of deaths because of that. If you take a look in the social sphere at some of the crazy statistics around energy, there's an unending supply of them. But I think one that struck me was the statement that the energy used in Senegal is the equivalent of the energy that's used by Californians when they're playing video games. Now, I expect that they're playing a lot of video games, but nevertheless, it's striking, isn't it, that a whole country's energy requirements are equivalent to the pleasures and leisure time of just one state, albeit the fifth largest economy in the world. So let's try and think of what it is that we're trying to achieve, and at the same time bear in mind that there is an issue of equality and of justice. Now, are there gender differences? At the top level, yes, of course there are. If we think about the daily business of most households, gathering fuel, if it's not available from the flick of a switch, is going to fall onto the shoulders of women and certain children. Most of the world still relies on being able to harvest that energy for free, which leads, of course, to tremendous deforestation. So we have wood um, traditionally being brought together, uh, bundled up, and the bundles that you see on the ladies' heads in the, in the slide, really that represents no more than two or three days of cooking fuel. And that's really the point. This is about the cooking. When I see, for example, all across Africa, children dragging branches and logs to school, and then these enormous piles of wood outside the little canteen at each of the schools, you realize that we're actually training people in the wrong way of thinking about their, in a sense, their right to have one of the basics in, in, in life and in learning. So what I think, in a sense, if you want to intervene, is to make sure that all of the schools have, let's say, either some kind of solar energy or renewable energy, so that you get the double effect of not only providing electricity in all of the schoolrooms, but also you avoid deforestation and damage to the surrounding environment. Uh, the other kind of fuel, of course, is dung. That is um, traditionally brought in not only for, for cooking, but also to build houses. And you'll see, you know, all around the world, ladies particularly harvesting the dung to be dried and then to be brought in to be burned. So we haven't moved that much further on from gathering peat, but nevertheless, this is one of the staple crops, I would call it. 
The challenge, of course, comes when you are completely dependent upon these sources of energy when there's a drought. So animals such as cattle, which are providing an, an enormous mainstay, uh, simply don't produce enough dung when they're under stress. And so these, this sort of coupling between the animal production and the use of the fuel and the gathering really are very intricately tied together. Now, when we use that kind of energy, I think I've mentioned before in my lectures on air quality, it has a huge impact um, and primarily on children and women who are in the household on the quality of life and on their health. So we see significant levels of emphysema, um, of all kinds of uh, problems with uh, breathing, and in the end, premature mortality. So again, if we solve the issue of clean energy, we solve multiple problems that go along with it. Now, in the world at large, what we can also recognize is that um, there's a problem sometimes with energy connectivity. But when we do bring energy into certain settings, it can have a dramatic cultural impact. The first, of course, is the emergence of the mobile phone. The challenge with the mobile phone is you have to charge it, and therefore people who've got capacity and have been able to buy, for example, a solar panel, buy a battery, and then be able to set up shops where people can come and charge their mobiles. And this is actually one of the sustainable development goals, is that we want to see more and more penetration of mobile phones and access. The challenge really is that, in a sense, we've got a burgeoning population where the statistics are phenomenal, um, but a sort of dependence in the middle. But what has been, I think, really transformative is how access to that one solar panel and battery and then tiny amounts to pay for charging. We're talking about 10 bob, so like 10 cents, 20 cents for a full charge in some parts of the world, means that you have created a business. And so the downstream effect of mobile telephony, beyond simply enabling people to communicate, is that you create a whole cadre of people who have not only got a way to make a living, but they become much more savvy and much more knowledgeable about what electricity is. And this is a real um, step up because when we consider development, sometimes it takes a long time for development agencies particularly to recognize that not everybody understands what electricity is. You know, it's electrons pouring out of, a, out of the wall. How does this work? You know, if I put a plug in. So there's a, there's a mismatch, much as we have seen in previous years in when you talk to children about where's their food coming from. If you ask most people, where's your electricity coming from? Actually, a lot of people now do know that there's a difference between fossil fuel and coal and clean energy. But still, to get that, um, that, that fuel into a form where you put a plug in the wall and you have electricity is not clear to people who've never had the experience of living with electricity for all of their lives. So it's doing two things. It's actually training people to run a business. Uh, it's also enabling people to enter into, in a sense, the world of borrowing, loans, paying back, creating a livelihood, creating budgets, um, something which is very important and a skill which we've seen again and again rolls out into people's broader lives. Now, the statistics for mobile phones are actually quite staggering. Um, we can see that you would have 
thought it amazing even 10 years ago that uh, we had maybe one, one person in the family had a telephone, had a mobile phone. But now the numbers are absolutely extraordinary. We've got physically 4.8 billion phones in the world. Um, we've got unique subscribers, 5.28 billion unique subscribers. So yes, some people have two lines, which is why those numbers don't, you know, don't exactly match to the number of people. But we've got 9.82 billion connections. So it usually means that if you somehow don't have a phone, you definitely know somebody who has got a phone. And this is obviously what you see in poor, poorer communities, is that the person with the phone, certainly if we have to buy airtime, that phone is often shared by others, even if people cannot read. And what they're projecting is that in the future, the number of smartphones, which is, I think today, it's about, um, it's about three quarters and growing. We're projecting that of the 7.33 phones and users in only five years' time, 70, nearly three quarters of it will be smartphones gaining access to the internet. So over a period of 10 years, we've gone from just a few people literally having smartphones to potentially three quarters of the population who own phones having smartphones. And what's striking about telephones and mobile phones is that even if somebody is illiterate, and I, you know, I, I live in a place where many of the, the ladies particularly have never been to school and are illiterate, they have phones. And what they have been able to do, of course, is they've worked almost entirely in an oral way, is learn many, many, many numbers. Um, they have it all in their head. They don't actually need it on the telephone because they can't read the names to be able to scroll through. But the fact is they actually know all these numbers. So they have no problem whatsoever connecting, um, bringing families together around the phone. And then you just simply have to take one of a village into a world like Zoom to open up those conversations, to take people into WhatsApp. And huge, huge changes occur. So I run um, an interesting research program with communities. And we decided some time ago that we would work in a WhatsApp group. I was not at all convinced that this was going to work. But it went on like, uh, it was just like, uh, like wildfire. People wanted to join, there are conversations. Um, even if the, the, the written part is not so good, people can record themselves. And we've been doing post-COVID uh, COVID stories, collecting that. And what it's showing is, even to the older generation, just how much enjoyment they can get working in, and being connected in this way. So there's a sense of, I guess, uh, enjoyment that comes along with having access to all of these facilities. Does it change communications? Yes, absolutely fundamentally. Um, yes, you can read a lot about you know, the bad things that are put into social media. But when I see it being used in a day-to-day -day sense, um, where we use SMS for, in this case, in COVID, bringing people to medical centers, having an early alert, where it doesn't cost anything on the phone to send the SMS. And within 15 minutes, they're actually talking to a health professional, being able to record their symptoms. 
They're then captured into the whole patient record so that were there to be an outbreak, essentially everybody is already connected. This is really transformational. And in Kenya, and I'm sure in many other countries, you, you see, of course, these efforts at tracking and tracing and so on. But the first step is that people have to be connected. They have to, in a sense, feel that there's going to be something, a lifeline thrown out to them. And in commentary with those who've been using these SMS services, it's almost as if they've got health insurance. Because unlike in the UK and other developed countries where it's very clear you can phone up something like um, the emergency service and be put through to a hospital, even though that might occur, it's quite a frightening proposition to many people if they've never had the experience of what that looks like. And they don't have health insurance in most cases. But the possibility that they can actually send a very simple SMS, a one or a zero, and get that human contact in a tribal language where they can actually discuss what is wrong with them is, I think, going to be one of the crucial pieces of the puzzle in dealing not only with COVID and the pandemic, but I think it will have a lasting impact on helping not only connect communities, but help build supply chains, bring people together to create new ways of uh, endeavoring to make livelihoods work and so on. So it's, it's quite an extraordinary time that COVID has put upon us. And I think it is forcing many in the administrative world to rethink both a, our sort of flippant dependence on energy and electricity, but also the fact that you can use it for so much good. Now, of course, not everybody's going to be near to a grid. And so we often talk about off-grid. And this is happening not just in the developing world, but it's also happening certainly in places across Europe, <clears throat> in, in the UK itself. And again, what, we, what we're missing quite often is a skill base of essentially small businesses that can manufacture and then put in place and operationalize off-grid technologies. Here in Sub-Saharan Africa, you see an enormous upsurge in essentially people coming and installing solar power. You can buy a solar pack literally in the local hardware store, and you can get a pretty good pack for about $30, and that will suffice. It gives you lights in the house, an inverter, and you can then charge essentially a mobile phone. You might even be able to run a radio off it. And if you buy a slightly power, more powerful one, you could even run a computer or a television off it. So if what, what we were seeing in the sense is massive employment um, challenges. The real question is, as we go back after the COVID um, lockdowns start to open up, we go back to thinking, how will we find employment for millions and millions of people? This is an opportunity to create small-scale apprenticeship and skill training systems that bring people into a technical world, but where they genuinely are going to have a market that will grow. And this is really the key. The prices have come tumbling down simply because of the demand. But more importantly, what we lack are, in many instances, local um, producers. So in Kenya, we now have the ability to buy solar panels that have been manufactured here in Kenya. 
And that's an enormous step forward. So if we were able to consider doing that uh, in many, many places, according to standards and guidelines, then you could imagine that being off grid doesn't have to be the expensive endeavor that we've thought of in the past. It is a tremendous boost to, I guess, many local communities and rural communities around the world. Um, and you can see fantastic examples. And this is particularly important for empowering women. So in many parts of Africa, in, in Asia, and certainly in Latin America, you see the emergence of women entrepreneurs who are literally starting in their villages, working by buying and investing in their first solar panel that enables them to have light in the buildings, um, and then that being seen as a, a cultural okay, and then generating the skills to be able to become a salesperson. So there are many, many examples all around the world where we see women now being able to create livelihoods, put food on the table, but also to change the way in which they're seen and, and really respected within communities. So the, the rise of the off-grid technology has really brought around um, an increase in the numbers of women entrepreneurs who've then gone on to do many other things. So this is not just simply in Africa, this is across the board. When I look at the UK um, and I think about the villages around where I've, I live, I see that we, we have not got that aspect very well sorted out. So one of the challenges, of course, is to get um, power that is stored. You can put up solar panels, but you need to store it in such a way that it can be useful. So you might have a small village hall where you want to essentially run all kinds of activities, probably in the evenings and so on. And what we have are a number of little energy um, sort of hubs which are reaching out to try to find the right kind of scaled technology. And I'll be very honest with you, it's difficult to find technologies which will essentially come, be rolled out, you put the panels on the wall, simple wiring which takes you down to storage, which is reliable, and which can then feed into the grid. Well, maybe not now, but certainly in, in the past. But even if you can't, you can create a small grid locally to be able to disperse and distribute energy. So there's a, a window of opportunity now, as people maybe potentially look at more localized services, to really create a driver that is a skill base that we need for the next for this century. So a gap in, in that will not only address energy poverty because it will become affordable, but more importantly, it will also address a whole issue of creating new jobs and livelihoods. And so thinking about the banking sector and thinking about how this could go forward, um, it's, it's very clear that we need to have communities enabled to essentially determine their own energy dense, uh, destiny. So not having to be on the grid if connecting to the grid is expensive. So I leave that with you to think about that for the UK. And in many remote and isolated parts of the UK, particularly on islands, there have been enormous strides and good efforts to create independent, energy independence. There's been hydrogen, um, obviously uh, all forms of renewal relating to um, hydropower and so forth. So the potential is there. What we actually need to 
push government on is to create the right policy and the right business environment that will equip a whole generation of energy engineers to do this most efficiently and locally. So now let me come to the last, uh, or the, really the title of this talk, which is about the last mile connectivity. In an endeavor to, endeavoring to connect everybody, there's been this sense that you can put the big grids in, but it's the very last mile that's the most expensive. And so countries, Kenya included, um, and many other countries, have recently picked up the need to pay attention to that last mile. It can go well, but it can also go horribly wrong. Um, and you can see in many parts, uh, certainly in rural areas, even in the UK, that the last mile, particularly when it comes to internet connectivity, is, is far off on the horizon. But let me take you to the village where I live, the little, uh, the little town, where, well, it's not a town, a village and a little settlement called Sekanani. So last mile connectivity was uh, a Kenyan policy, fantastic, all rolling out. And the idea was um, it was well-funded and essentially the crews were out. And where we were living, because there was no road, essentially it wasn't going to happen. And then eventually um, the road was built and it was it's just literally been completed um, about uh, two months ago. So it took years. Um, and as the road was going in, clearly people began to do what often happens, have sort of a linear development, start to move closer to the road. And so the power companies realized that, ah, okay, here's a market. So they were quite prepared to do the investment down the spine of this road, maybe the first 30 to 40 kilometers. But there's still another 40 kilometers at the far end. Very dispersed communities, little villages, one or two settlements, two houses, um, all very separated from each other. So the government, having put in place this policy, then started to send out work crews. And one day we woke up and there overnight, a whole group of uh, men had arrived with concrete poles, which they then started to put in, in a, what would appear to be an entirely haphazard way, going across people's lands um, to places where there weren't anybody and so forth. So I started to have conversations with them saying, well, um, so where's the plan? Um, did you get any prior informed consent? Did you talk to people? Did you? And the answer was, yes, yes, yes. Um, somebody from the power company came. Um, they told them that they were coming and they asked if they could cross their land and put the poles in here. So I went and spoke to many of the, there were, a lot of them were widows, old ladies sitting in the houses and wondering what on earth was going on. And I asked them, I said, did someone ask your permission? They said, well, we didn't understand what it was, but now it's going to be great because we're going to get electricity. And I said, well, yes, it's going to be. However, um, this, is, this is now a very different way of life for you. Well, what do you mean, Nasserian? Well, um, first of all, you're going to have to connect. So, yeah, you're living in a mud house, so we put a backboard in and we bring a wire from that pole that's up there on your land. Okay. Oh, all right, okay. Um, and I said, that's going to cost, we've been told, 18,000 shillings, $180. Now, if, if I tell you that for most of these ladies, it is, it is true that it's less than a dollar a day. So that's 180 days of not eating to be able to pay for the connectivity. 
So that this is just this is completely out of all proportion to what is affordable. And then, of course, you have to break the news that what comes down the wire isn't free and that you'll get a bill. Now, of course, for a lady who doesn't read, hasn't been to school, um, et cetera, et cetera, has got a phone maybe, but knows how to buy airtime, but doesn't really understand what a bill is. The concept that someone's going to bill her and then she's going to have to send money back is, is just inconceivable. This is not going to happen. So uh, we had a large discussion around this and I did all the calculations. Of course, it turns out that it's far, far better for the houses to continue as they had been doing, which was to save up their little bits. And then we invest and everyone gets a solar panel. They get all the, you know, they get the light bulb and so on, which will keep them going for um, about a half a year. And they can, if need be, they can even put an inverter in to do the charging for themselves, which also saves them money. And it turned out that the cost of a small solar system to install it and to make it actually operational and to work was potentially going to be paid off within six to eight months. Whereas connecting to the grid, even though eventually some of the electricity might be relatively cheap, was going to take them at least four years. Well, in that time, they bought the solar equipment. They've probably even had a chance to buy a second one because they do wear out. And this is really the challenge, I think, is that culturally, doing things like the last mile connectivity is politically extremely important. And people you know, say, well done, well done. But the reality is that it doesn't happen for a whole variety of reasons, many of which are cultural. So last mile connectivity, which is designed to supply what, to meet the targets that the sustainable development goals have set, is probably not going to be the solution. It's going to be off-grid and it's going to be making these packs affordable and training people. This is a wonderful job creation process uh, in particularly in developing countries where some um, large proportion of the population have not had any formal training. Because the one great thing about solar power in particular is that you don't have sufficient voltage to kill yourself. So, I mean, it, the whole thing is a lot safer than if you were trying to install it at the, at the sort of levels that you would do in the UK. Nevertheless, it's an important piece of the puzzle that the delivery of energy and the access to electricity can really be brought together. Now, let me go to the other extreme of the world, up in a very remote place. And what we see there is quite an interesting process around electricity. So this is um, a picture of Tasiak in uh, Greenland. We used to go there a great deal. And one of the things you notice, of course, is that the buildings, um, because they've pretty much moved out of the old, very um, uh, traditional buildings, which are dug into the ground you know, to keep them warm and so on, they're effectively showing what looks like Danish construction industry because, of course, it's a Danish, uh, it's part of the Danish kingdom. Nevertheless, um, they do have significant periods of time when there are power outages and where there is no electricity. And that brings me to the second side of the story, which is people who are used to having electricity and then lose it. Famous things about power outages, brownouts, and so on. So, you know, you've set up your day, you've got things planned, oh, and then there's no power. You have to change and that. And quite honestly, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge in Norway. It's a challenge in many places which are remote and have very extreme weather conditions. 
So a lot of studies have now been done on the opposite, which is what is it like to take something fundamental away from people? So we understand about the psychology of taking freedom away, but take away electricity and sometimes for quite long periods of time. And you begin to see a very interesting psychology. Now in Norway, where obviously, you know, it's very high standard of living and, and yet people being relatively uh, environmentally aware and keen have not invested in diesel generators, tend to essentially return to a very different way of living. So they are using the daylight hours. They have absolutely got resilience down to a fine art in terms of what it means for social communication and so forth. So it brings out, in the studies that we've been looking at, it brings out a deep sense of um, the ability to adapt and a strong resilience. You see the same thing in Greenland. In fact, if these power outages go on for any time, uh, they will revert effectively to using um, traditional forms of keeping themselves warm, but also of, of lighting. So the psychology is really clear that if you have been used to, because of the ruggedness of the environment, doing without, then actually you manage the ability to live without electricity for periods of time. But if we go to places where that isn't the case, and you can start to see this now as people are working at home, there is a growing discussion and conversation about how it's creating huge frustrations, mental stress, and a whole raft of problems of people who have been unable to adapt when they're exposed to their intense use of electricity to connect, and the frustrations when those connections can't be, can't be made for whatever reason, because you can't go out, you can't socialize, you can't connect. And so our mental health, our mental stability is now getting more and more deeply tied up into what it is to be connected, what it is to have access to electricity. So much so that new studies on children who are both uh, in the developed and in the developing world with and without energy see that there are changes in cognitive skills. The attention span of young children is very different in those who have continuous access to electricity to those who don't, um, particularly in terms of um, self, uh, you know, looking after yourself and being able to entertain yourself and so forth. So overall, we have begun to, I guess, in a gay, live symbiotically with energy, with electricity. We've always had to use energy in our lives for cooking and for heating and so on. But our dependence on electricity is one that we really need to recognize. And so when I think about where we are with COVID and we're thinking of being in a sense, in lockdown, you might end up being in lockdown like, like here in the last picture, which is sort of in the jungle. Um, but I think COVID is an extremely important moment in pretty much everybody's lives about the, the, th the true things that we are dependent upon. The fact that we can't simply, and it's out of our control if we're connected to a grid, we can't simply go out and turn the grid on. Those people in the off-grid actually have far more self-determination around their energy because if it's well-established and it takes into account a lot of the uh, exigencies of weather, 
then of course it's possible for for those who are using solar or hydro or whatever to have more continuous service. But nevertheless, it still happens. When it rains and the skies are overcast, the solar power just doesn't happen. So we're all having to live, I think, with electricity being a fundamental part of nature. It's how we bring energy into our homes. We must remember that there is still one seventh of the population of the planet that do not have access to electricity, that 940 million, still too many people. But being ingenious, bringing energy into the conversation at the local level, not thinking about it being provided by some distant corporation, thinking locally, how do we get our energy? How can we make sure that we've got um, security of supply? How do we make sure that everybody in our community has energy and that we remove energy poverty from the equation? Will not only release us from one of those pieces of the sustainable development puzzle that is stopping having, let's say, a clean and a healthy way of living, but it could also unlock and generate huge numbers of jobs going forward into the into the future post-COVID. So thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you're all safe. Um, it is a bit frustrating, I must say, still being in quarantine or still being in lockdown and with with curfews and so forth. And I suspect that being in Kenya as opposed to being in the UK means I'll be in my room for a lot longer than, uh, than many of you will. But I do hope that you enjoyed this. Um, it's been a great pleasure to do these lectures. And I hope that uh, you'll join me in, in next year's series. Thank you so much and goodbye.